Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Andy McCarthy standing by. I need some cases unwound for me and put into layman's terms, and he's as good as it gets. Uh, Rich Lowry at the bottom of the hour, Inside Politics. So glad everybody's here. I know the President of the United States is coming to visit me here in New York City. No, not me, okay. But he's coming here probably to raise money because he doesn't give speeches, he doesn't give interviews, not even at the Super Bowl, uh, and which would be a friendly setting, but that's for another time. A lot going on, a lot of moving parts today. We just got some stunning numbers from who uh, the border crossers encounters since October 1st. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. So... That is exactly why CENTCOM is doing the assessment and review that it is right now to determine what else we need to do, what happened, why this attack happened, how this drone was able to get through, how it was able to evade air defenses. Middle East madness, let's start. Facts emerging from the Jordan 22 drone strike that killed three Americans. It turns out the base seems to be totally unprotected. No missile defense. That is sinful. While a Gaza hostage deal gets closer and the Houthi rebel rocket attacks continue. Number two. The Court of Appeals wants the trial to proceed before the election, and that's an inherently political decision. I'm continually amazed by the ability of Trump's opponents to to shoot themselves in the foot. 2024, from the Trump trials to Biden's long-awaited own classified document investigation, plus Nevada results that were truly embarrassing for Nikki Haley. Number one. I understand some Republicans are saying we don't need any changes to law. Then why did we write write HR two? Why did we Why did we do that? Why didn't Trump just shut down the border? If you just think we don't need any changes to law, he couldn't. He had to make a deal with Mexico, and he did a great job doing that. Unprecedented. The border emergency takes several twists and turns from the impeachment to reform. Americans have been affected by Biden's border policies in a big way, but now he's saying the reason the border is broken is because of Donald Trump. That's a fascinating leap that I don't think Andy McCarthy could back up legally. He's a Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, but his resume has first Fox News contributor uh, and best-selling author. Andy, uh, welcome back. Brian, great to be with you. I did not know Donald Trump broke the border the last three and a half years. <laughs> I had no idea. My fault. I've got to read my notes. Uh, and, but we just got these numbers. Thank Donald Trump. From October 1st till today, one million one million have crossed our border illegally. Do you believe this? Well, yeah. At the um, you know, once they reformed or reformed is the wrong word, but once they rescinded Title Forty Two, which of course they you know they had to rescind Title Forty Two because it was based on a fiction that we still had a COVID pandemic. So I can understand, of course, why they did it, but they didn't replace it with any similar right. Expulsion authority. And once that happened, all bets were off and everybody said it was going to be 10,000 or more per day. So I guess we got numbers just like that. I know in December, Brian, it was 371,000 in one month. (laughs) 
It's unbelievable. And now the only time they admit it's a crisis is because it seems as though the the compromise plan that Senator Langford put forward with Senator Sinema and Senator Murphy uh, has 20 to 25 det- uh, Republican detractors. Uh, they're going to vote no on it. So now the Democrats go, yeah, the, the border's broken and you guys don't want to fix it. So Yeah, well, I, I think if this bill fixed it, everybody would be all for it. The, but what I've said, and I've looked at this very carefully, Brian, and I've tried to tell people um, – to me, this is not politics. I couldn't care less whether this helps or hurts Trump politically. I couldn't care less whether Biden gets a win or doesn't get a win. This is about national security. It's not about politics as far as I'm concerned. And if you enact this bill, everything in it that's good, Biden could already do under existing law. But what they're saying is we should buy that good, which we already have, by giving up a lot of bad that they would be writing into our law and that would undermine good law that we now have. Like, for example, the the current law says that an illegal alien who's apprehended trying to cross the border shall be detained. This law would write into our – or this proposal would write into our law all kinds of provisions that would not only enable illegal aliens to be released, which is what's – Biden's illegally doing anyway, so it's just basically trying to bless what he's uh, already doing. Uh, But it puts them on a path um, to achieve citizenship, which will be a magnet for more illegal immigration. Right. Uh, What they say is this. They say that the asylum criteria will be tougher. So if you come to the border and said, I feel oppressed, I'm running for my life. That normally gets you in and gets you a trial within now 10 years or something like that. Now it's within six months. And for you to even get that six months, you have to show that you can't go to another part of your country and prove that you're actually under threat. And almost no one comes to the border with that proof. So they'd be turned right around. Am I reading that wrong or has it been explained to me wrong? No, it's, it's not that you're reading it wrong or it's been explained. And if that's all they were doing, that would be great. I would be all for it, except that's not all they're doing. What you know, some people are now going to be able to go just to uh, one of Mayorkas's uh, agents in the uh, agency rather than go to an immigration court to make the asylum claim, and and they'll be able to give one. Uh, the Center for Immigration Studies has shown that that process is letting three times more people in uh, than the old process where you actually had to go to. An immigration court. And the other thing about this is the system is going to be instantly overwhelmed by what they're doing. You know, l- let me give you an example. They say, look at how tough we are. Currently, there are only 34,000 detention spaces for illegal aliens. Our proposal lifts that to 50,000. Now, first of all, she just pointed out we had a million people come in since October, right? 50,000? Detention spaces are going to deal with that. If you if this pace continues, and if you allow up to five thousand people to come in before you shut the border, how long do you figure the extra sixteen thousand until it's filled up? Right. You know. So they're saying we end catch and release, and I'm saying, did you end math? Because we only have so many resources, and if you've got millions of people coming in here, how have you stopped catching release? But could we just turn them around right there? Example, okay, okay, uh, you are not allowed in. Uh, I don't believe your asylum came. You can't prove it. Turn right around, just like Biden you would if you can't get into a club. 
Yes, Biden has that authority now. In statutory law, he can just close the border. And look, Brian, they're saying that we have this formula. When you hit 5,000, we're going to order the border closed. Yes. Right? What that means is this whole thing we've been told all along that if an alien steps his toe on American soil, he has all kinds of rights to apply for asylum and fear of persecution, and you have to let him in the country, and you have to process that's all been lies. It's all been fiction because the president has had the authority all along to shut the border. Now we're just arguing about what the number should be before you ex- exercise the authority. And my question it remains, as it has always been, if the statutory law of the United States right. says an alien shall be detained, why shouldn't the number be zero? Why should it be 5,000? I think it, count, it counts encounters. So even people that fit the criteria counts. An encounter is just a uh, a fuzzy word that they like to use. We call it a euphemism, right? The reason they say encounters is they're not doing what people would expect, which would be apprehend and arrest. So they call it an encounter because they don't actually arrest anyone. Uh, they process them. So it's basically turned our border security personnel into babysitters and administrative clerks who can't right. patrol the border because they've got these other responsibilities, mm-hmm. which, as Bill Malugin shows us night after night, that means like zillions more people get in because we have less resources actually patrolling the border. I want you to hear what Dan Crenshaw said, the congressman from Texas. Cut eight. I understand some Republicans are saying, we don't need any changes to law. Then why did we write, H- write H.R. 2? Why did, we, why did we do that? Why didn't Trump just shut down the border if you just think we don't need any changes to law? He couldn't. He had to make a deal with Mexico, and he did a great job doing that. Um, but he had to rely on literally international agreements to get it under control. So what's your answer to that? I'm really disappointed in Dan Crenshaw. Nobody is saying that we shouldn't have changes in the law. What we're saying is the changes in the law that they're proposing will make the situation worse rather than better. No one is saying that you shouldn't have changes in the law. Of course you should have changes in the law that tighten up what the – uh, requirements are for showing your your eligibility for asylum, for proving right. fear Which of person. Does. Should, of course we have the but what they're saying is you need changes in the law to close the border. And that's just flatly untrue. There's there's very easy, accessible to read statutory law that gives the president the full power to close the border now. Okay, I want and to to the extent we need changes in the law, we need Congress to appropriate more resources not for processing illegal aliens into the country, but for actually sealing the border closed. Well, okay. Um, But it didn't seem like Trump had all – Trump did say he didn't have all the tools he needed. Of course not. They wouldn't build – they wouldn't give him money for the wall. What's he supposed to do, like sell 90 Wall Street and get the money himself to build? You're not even allowed to do that. I mean, there's a lot of things we need for security, right? The the bait and switch here, Brian, is they're saying, oh, so you're saying we don't need changes in the law. Now you're saying we don't need changes in the law. What we're saying is we don't need these changes in the law that make it worse. You have a few things in there that would be very good if you did them in a vacuum. If you want to tighten up the eligibility requirements, I'm all for it. If you want to... uh, Put in resources, like much more resources for detention space and for people who are actually going to guard the border instead of processing 
illegal aliens into the United States. Everybody should be for that. But that's not what they're doing here. What they're writing into the law is that people who right. come into this country illegally should be released. And the current law says they should be detained. Now, see, you see that's how I misread how it. So this is, if you come in here and don't qualify, you're out right away. You don't get detained. You get turned around. That's what it should be. But, but what they're that... writing into this law, which, which they're denying, is all kinds of provisions that would call for people to be released while their cases are pending which is what's happening now illegally. So all they're trying to do is make what they're doing illegally legal. All right, so I want to get to a couple other areas. Governor Hochul is ripping the decision to free those uh, migrants who beat up those cops. Uh, One guy is detained. He says, how could you have let them go? Uh, She said during a Tuesday appearance, the Democrat, she believes uh, several of the suspects fled the state on a bus to California following the abhorrent act. Anyone who thinks they should have been let loose I have a big, big disagreement with. So why doesn't she do it to she blame Alvin Bragg, right? Isn't she capable Jeez. of firing Alvin Bragg? Doesn't she know all about this is the bail reform that was put out in 2019, isn't it? Yeah, this is she is the only uh, elected official in New York who conceivably has authority to remove a district attorney. The craziness of New York, Brian, includes the fact that the mayor of the city gets to appoint the police commissioner, but the district attorneys do not answer to the mayor. They are independently elected officials, and the only official in the state who arguably has authority over them is the governor. So, you know, she can grouse about it, but why, to do something about it, you'd have to remove Bragg, which, of course, she'll never do. The uh, other areas, yesterday it came down. I don't think it surprised you. I don't know, but a 3-0 decision. On an appellate court, the president of the United States does not have immunity from January 6th pr- prosecution. And now they have till Monday. They said you have to Monday to file an appeal to the Supreme Court. Where do you take it from? Andy, what do you think of the decision? And what do you think of the chances the Supreme Court takes this? Yeah, I think um, the decision is right in terms of what the law was. I don't think even Trump's lawyers really expected uh, to, that they were going to win this. Um, I I, I kind of think, Brian, the, the Supreme Court won't take the case, and the reason is, to my mind, Im- immunity has receded as an important issue because the big enchilada for Trump is obstruction. The Supreme Court granted cert or granted review to some of the January 6th defendants on the grounds that Uh, They're troubled by the way federal prosecutors are using the same obstruction statute that's in Trump's case. We're not going to get a decision on that until late June, but that could really upend Smith's case, depending on how the court handles that obstruction statute. So I think the court is kind of indirectly dealing with Trump's case by much more importantly dealing with the substance of it, the obstruction count. The chance that Trump was was going to be found to have immunity by the courts when no court has ever granted a president immunity from criminal prosecution, I, I just don't think that was going to happen. If it was going to happen, it's only going to be from the Supreme Court, and I don't think they're going to do that. And the Supreme Court, do you think will take it or no? I don't think so. I think they're going to. I think they'll deal with the obstruction. What is the, how do you? What's the obstruction charge that the Trump people are putting forward? Well, there's four counts in the indictment: the election interference. Indictment. Yeah. Two of the counts are obstruction under the same statute that's at issue in the January 6th cases. And it's the weightiest counts against Trump. It's 40 years 
uh, of exposure in the indictment. So it's the most important. It's the heart of Smith's right. case. And if the court says that the Justice Department prosecutors have been misusing that and that it wasn't meant for this situation, that's going to blow up Smith's case. And, and, so that's that, and that's got to wait till June. So they won't start the case until the obstruction uh, appeal is, is heard? Yeah, I don't see how Judge Chutkin could conceivably – if the court is going to rule on the most important charge in the case, I don't see how she could conceivably start the trial before that happens. So I think you're talking July at the earliest, but we also have to see what the court does with the obstruction charge. So interesting. Uh, and then you have that, and then you have the Georgia case, which is a mess. We've got to talk about it another time. And then you have the documents case where people are just trying to get – uh, clearance in order to look at the documents to build a defense. So there's a, a long delay to a lot of these cases. Andy, anything you think is going to get tried first? Uh, I, I still think, Brian, that they'd be crazy to go with the Bragg case first, even if March is now open, because that's such a terrible case. It's like a no-lose right. for Trump, I think, because if he loses, people will say, ah, oh, that's New York, they have it in for him. But if he wins, it makes it look like the whole lawfare right. thing is uh, is highly partisan and, and otherwise empty. And I, I guess the other big gotcha. thing we should mention is tomorrow, right? Tomorrow's the big argument on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and whether he can stay on the ballot. He is uh, Andy McCarthy. It looks like uh, he'll be able to stay on the ballot. That could be another substantial victory. Andy, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, we come back. Uh, we'll have more on this, and especially the Middle East mayhem and a possible truce, and then Rich Lowry. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Let me just say we're really fortunate to have a real leader, a true friend, and an historic vice president, Kamala Harris. Right, and he wanted to say a true friend and a great par- a partner. Really good friends. We have a great friendship. So someone whispered in his ear, people don't think you guys get along. Anytime you say to someone, we're great friends, well, if you're, for example, with your spouse, your significant other, and you say, I'd like to introduce you to my wife, we have a really good relationship. You know they don't. And he actually said that two or three times yesterday. But look, not all presidents and vice presidents get along. You know, Reagan and and Bush, 41, had great respect, but they weren't tight. Al Gore and Bill Clinton don't even talk to each other. Dick Cheney and Bush don't talk to each other. But these guys never got along. It was a forced marriage that he backed himself into. Kind of. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Rich Lowry's back. I got to talk about Nevada. I have to talk about the jujitsu that Joe Biden's trying to pull up on the border. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I saw former President Trump make that allegation earlier today on one of his social media posts. All the president has to do is declare the borders closed and it's closed. Well, with all due respect, that didn't happen in 2017, 18, 19, and 20. There were millions of people who came into the United States during those four years. But what did happen was that that administration, led by the president, led by people who believe in America, led by strong leaders at DHS, they worked to secure the border. 
They work to get those numbers down. Congressman Chip Roy, who was a DeSantis uh, fan, and not a, he's not an anti-Trumper, but he thought DeSantis would be a better president. Um, and he was just being candid right there because we're, we're discussing the border bill. We're also discussing the Ukraine aid, how, how it's linked to Israel aid. The Republicans came out and said, look, I'm not going to do international aid until we get the border done. So they worked on a deal and they got a deal. Republicans don't like the deal. That's fine. Twenty five don't. But now what happens to the foreign aid? And don't pretend that some of this stuff wouldn't have helped the border. Now, I just hung up with Andy McCarthy. He thinks almost nothing would have helped the border. Uh, Rich Lowry in studio, editor of National Review, uh, best-selling author. Hey, Rich, uh, welcome. Great to see you in person. Good to be here. What's your what's your reaction with Congressman Chip Roy just said? I love him. He gets worked up, <clears throat> but which look, is every day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not unusual. So this is going to be the Biden argument. They've it's played out perfectly for their purposes, where they can say, "Look, we we had this bipartisan bill. We worked on it for months. You know, uh, Mitch McConnell thought it was a good idea. Lankford thought it was a good idea. Mitt Romney thinks it's a good idea, and these extremists are rejecting it. I think they'll get some mileage from that. But the problem he has at the end of the day, right? First three years, he blew the whole thing up. February 2nd, 2021, executive order repealing Remain in Mexico and repealing the safe third country agreements to to keep asylum seekers in the Northern Triangle. Why did he do that? Was he forced to do that? Everyone said, don't do it because it's going to create chaos at the border. Sure enough, it created chaos at the border. He's looking at an NBC poll that has 30 points behind Trump on the border. And they realize now that's a disaster. All of them do. The memo's gone out. Reverend Al was talking the other day about the invasion at the border, right? Only a term that only Trump you know, used a few short years ago. But I just so I don't, I don't think this – I think it's an own goal by Republicans the last couple of days. But I don't think it's going to be enough to, to help Biden out of this What do you mean? Uh, an own goal on, on what's Langford and Cinema and Murphy put together or, or, alone, uh, or, or not negotiating on it? Well – Really both. So Langford McConnell should have realized it's not going to be there, right? So we're going to do this deal. Trump's against it. There's no way Republicans are going to be for it if Trump's against it. So let's not create this this wedge issue against our own party, right? This is an issue that unites Republicans. And you've had this incredible divisive infighting within the party over the last couple of days over this deal. Why did they have to do that? You know, they could have walked away. And to the substance of the deal, it's not. It's the best bipartisan immigration bill we've seen in decades. That's clear. But the substance is not good enough. It basically codifies a lot of the situation we have. And just the headline number, you know, they kind of deny, say it's not really what it means, but that you can go up to 5,000 a day, a crisis level, before you shut down. And then you can only shut down until it's 75% lower than that, which is still a crisis level. And then the shutdown authority diminishes over time. So in the third year, it doesn't exist anymore or after the third year, which is clearly like they're afraid Donald Trump will get elected and use it. So you talk about an own goal. Now, look. So as you know, just to go back to December or November, they said before Christmas, we need to finance Ukraine and Israel. And the Republicans came back and said, no, you need to do the border. Mm -hmm. And then they said, "Okay, let's just combine it. So they did it. And this is what they came back with. But now what about the Ukraine and Israel aid? So, Rich, I know what you're talking about when you said it's, uh, you know, why do that? It'll never be acceptable. But what what about the yeah? what about the Israel aid? Uh, What about the Ukraine aid? And, you know, there should be some attachments to the Ukraine aid, absolutely, on accounting, on affordability. There should be someone monitoring there in Ukraine. Follow these weapons right to Kiev if you have to. But now what happens? Yeah. So they'll put it together in a big package and see if it, it'll what? pass. I think Both foreign. Uh, Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan – and I think that that'll have a majority in both houses. The question is whether Johnson will actually bring it up or not. Uh, if he if he puts it on the floor, every Democrat will vote for it, and some Republicans will vote for it, and it passes. 
But if he just says, I'm not going to do it, you know, there's nothing, there's no forcing him. I think that'd be the wrong call. But but. you know, he's already said that Ukraine needs to be financed. So he said that. So he is just doing it. He's not putting it forward to keep his job. Mm -hmm. Right. So come up with the financing. I'm totally fine with the financing. Then that's a problem with the, obviously with the Senate and with the, with the White House. But I, I just think the Ukraine aid is just such a no-brainer for me. No Americans are fighting there. It's a, a major conflict involving the future of Europe against an a, a adversary that hates us and is allied with China. And we have someone else fighting the battle. That's the ideal situation, right? You, you have a proxy force that's fighting the war directly against your adversary. And it costs you some money. And, it's, and you know, we're depleting our stores of munitions. Build more munitions. We're going to need them one way or the other. Right. And, the, and you come back with modern stuff. Mm-hmm. And you empty your coffers. And right. now the rest of the NATO says we're going to have to write checks because we've got to modernize our equipment. We've got to stop with this Russian stuff. And whether you're a small country or Pol- be like Poland, they're going to be able to buy from us. So we work it to our advantage to rebuild right. our industrial base. Right. Every, you know, what Eisenhower said is not a problem now. Yeah. The yeah, military exactly. industrial base is not taking over. In fact, it's not big enough. Yeah. So some of the war games against China, if we end up in a conflict over Taiwan, we run out of missiles within days. Within days, how, how, how can we tolerate that as a country? So we need to invest more in the industrial base. You think the, the Democrats would like it because it's industrial policy. You think uh, kind of the MAGA right who's, who's uh, you know, warming up to industrial policy would like it for the same reason. It's good blue-collar jobs. It's manufacturing. It's happening here in the U.S., and it supports our national interests. So it checks every box as far as I'm concerned. But well, you know, the problems are Republicans, and there must be a division uh, that you look at as you're the ultimate conservative, Rich Lowry. And there's a lot of conservatives on the right, uh, Laura Ingram, yep. uh, Steve Bannon. Uh, they'll say, oh, are you kidding me? Uh, you know, Russia, you know, we, you, NATO had no right to expand this close to Russia. And let's not get involved in another foreign war. And Zelensky's corrupt. Yep. And we don't let that's not a pure democracy. Yeah. And that's the argument. Yeah. So there's a huge divide on the right, obviously, on foreign policy and a number of other things. Is Ukraine corrupt? Yeah. Is it a perfect democracy? No, you know, but is it better than Russia? Yes. Is it allied with the West? Yes. So in foreign affairs, especially, you don't get any pure, perfect options. It's, it's a practical game. And, and what's what's the alternative here? You know, I would take a deal, uh, a half a loaf deal, you know, today, if it, you know, giving giving Russia some of Ukraine and having them stop. But I'm not sure they're going to stop given that they see what's happening in the West, that we're getting exhausted with it. And, you know, they survived the counteroffensive just fine and seem to be, you know, on the offensive themselves. Why would they stop? What, you know, why would they keep going? They are paying a huge price. And they probably lost 300,000 men. Uh, and now they're, they're forcing their, their 40-year-olds uh, drafted. Uh, and now I also see this. I also see um, they have a situation where they're getting hit. Crimea is anything but safe. Yeah. They're not getting mm-hmm. anyone there. And they're starting to hit small towns. Yeah. So, and, you know, it's good news that EU actually wrote that check and overcame yeah, so, Hungary. So what that argues for, fund Ukraine and then try to get a deal. I, I'm not against a deal at all. I don't think what Trump has said crazy, by the way. He's not going to do it in 24 hours. But try to get the peace deal. And Trump has been very careful about not. He's never said he's going to cut off Ukraine. You know, it's kind of been applied or suggested because he's, he's saying, you know, I'm going to get everyone together. But, but trying to get the peace deal while you still support Ukraine makes sense to me. Right. Uh, by the way, he's the one who armed Ukraine. So he's going right. to put some yeah. advisors on the ground right. there. Uh, the other guy gave him uh, uh, MR, uh, blankets and MREs. So let's talk about another fail on the Republican side. They want to impeach uh, Mayorkas, even though it's not going to go anywhere in the Senate. So evidently they can't count 
Yeah. Because Al Green comes walking in, I guess, in, in hospital robes. <laughs> He's a Democrat. And then they lost Gallagher, McClintock, and Ken Buck. So here's uh, Congressman Tom McClintock. So therefore, when it looked like it was going to tie and fail, they made it lose and are going to come back and vote on it when Scalise is better. Here's cut 14, Com- uh, Republican Tom McClintock. This is a problem that can only be solved by replacing this entire administration, and that in turn can only be done by the American people at the ballot box. There's plenty of reason to believe that the American people are reaching that very same conclusion. So polling, yes, a stunt like this uh, by, by abusing the constitutional authority of impeachment. Uh, puts a partisan taint on something that is is now uh, uh, driving a lot of Democratic communities to realize they've got to replace this administration. I don't know how you put this on the floor, not being totally certain you have the votes. You know, to, to be up on the air. It's Tom Emmers. Like, yeah, it's 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 crazy. It's 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 one of the worst acts of incompetence we've seen in the House in a very long time. I'd support. I'd I'd impeach Mayorkas in the on <clears throat> in the abstract. But if it's this close, you know, and it's going to go nowhere in the Senate, maybe you don't do it. I think he's derelict in his duty. Um, they're violating the Constitution. He's not telling the truth. Right. And he, he's lied about it. But, you know, he is ultimately he is he's Biden's minion. Right. So that, I don't know why you wouldn't like another way to go would be to throw this in this article into a Biden impeachment. But if this impeachment isn't going well, what's going to happen with a Biden impeachment? Uh, that's a great question. And also it was brought up to me that wait till Steve Scalise is better. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, well, so, you, you get it bar- barely that through. could be yeah. next week. Yeah. So you get it through, but everything's going to be barely through. And as Senator Fetterman brought to my attention a couple of weeks ago, why is Menendez in the Senate and Santos out of the House? Mm-hmm. I know. Well, Santos never should have been expelled. He just – you would have beaten him in a primary. This is a new president for expelling someone just on the basis of an indictment. He's not a great guy. He's a liar, all the rest of it. But he was voted in, and he would have been voted out. So I don't think they should have created the precedent. But John Fetterman's one of the most amazing stories, or political stories of the last three months, utterly transformed his image with just a few things, you know, Israel being anti-Menendez, but doing it all in a very pungent, theatrical way. Uh, I, I think he's, he's the political player of the year so far. Right. Uh, he doesn't want Trump, obviously, but he's upset with, uh, uh, you know, he's upset with the people in his own party that are pro-Hamas. Yeah. They're not even pro-Palestinian. They're pro-Hamas. Yeah. And when they tried to raid him and riot against him, he got on top of his roof and held an Israeli flag. Exactly. Uh, there you go. It's just fantastic. Rich Lyra is going to stick around. Um, can you, Rich? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Uh, we've got to talk a little bit more about politics. I want to talk about what happened in Nevada, what could be happening in South Carolina, and the last five polls of Donald Trump beating Joe Biden. Does Rich believe he's on the way to winning, despite the uh, plethora of court cases facing him? You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Covering this election year like no other, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. President Trump's argument is, well, I was doing things. I was calling other public officials. I was coordinating election oversight. That's part of the president's job. What what Jack Smith and this Court of Appeals panel say is, oh, no, what you were doing was well over that line, well out of bounds, and indeed, potentially, arguably, criminal. The third argument that they reject is Donald Trump's sort of, let's say, inventive argument that a former president or president can only be indicted 
once he's been impeached by the House of Representatives and then convicted by the U.S. Senate. Only then can he be criminally indicted. That was a creative construction that doesn't work for a lot of obvious reasons. So it didn't work, and it's up to the Supreme Court to see if they'll take it or not and see where that goes. But by the way it was written, people think they were trying, the appellate court was trying to close the door on the uh, on the immunity with the 3-0 decision. But Andy McCarthy just told us, Rich Lowry, that he believes the obstruction case in this is should, that is being challenged, uh, you can't go forward with this case until there's a decision on that. Yeah, so this, there's a couple of January 6th defendants who are ap- appealing their cases based on the interpretation of the obstruction statute, which is a huge element of the January 6th case against Trump. And the, and the Supreme Court's <clears throat> considering this, so we won't know until June. And then... So, so you really should wait with the January 6th case. But then what are you going to do? Are you going to start the January 6th case in June or July or, or August and run it through the fall and get a verdict, you know, sentencing in October? It's insane. It's totally insane. So you have that. The documents cases uh, in Miami uh, between giving everybody the, uh, the classification or giving them the high-level security clearance or go through the documents and how many have to go through – Nobody thinks that's going to happen before the election that I saw. I listened to every channel happen. and all these experts. Do yep. you agree? N- not going to happen. I, I, you know, Andy McCarthy is the expert in this area because he's actually prosecuted cases like this. But he tells stories, you know, there'll be a dispute over one classified note card, and it'll take 18 months to figure out how to handle it, you know, and all the back and forth. So, yeah, there's no way that's happening this year. So you have that and then the Georgia case with the Fannie Willis, uh, Fannie Willis situation where she has proven uh, totally distrustful. Yep. But I don't know what's salacious and what compromises the case. So a guy is prosecuting it. He has no experience doing it. The money the, that he's getting paid, they seem to vacation on, admitted the yep. affair or the yep. relationship that they have. And uh, we also know there's coordination with the White House. Why else would he be invoicing for two visits with uh, White House counsel. Yeah. I mean, how fortunate is Trump, Trump and his enemies? I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't make this one up. And the case is kind of a rickety Rube Goldberg device to, to begin with. So there's some possibility it was going to collapse. I think just having this on top of it, uh, I, I, that, that one doesn't seem likely to me either, which leaves, so leaves Alvin Bragg, right, going first, which might be the best scenario. If Trump has to be tried on anything, maybe it's that one. It's, it's a case that even liberals and Democrats admitted is uh, extremely weak. It's not something that people care about as much as, you know, January 6th or classified documents. It's a, you know, payoff in, involving a, a porn star. In the 90s. Yeah, so a long time ago. So if he's going to get convicted on something – if you had to pick, that would be it. But he said Trump can win it. Yeah. Can you imagine the jet fuel that his campaign Huge. would have? Not only is it exposed to be a farce of a case with Michael Cohen as your key witness, but then he could go ahead and win this thing. Yeah. So that that would be huge. And and if that's the only case, if he's tried on nothing else, the the two things that Democrats are are banking on, well, a couple things. One, Trump's persona is radioactive. The economy getting better. Abortion. But then there's conviction, right? This NBC News poll that was a disaster for Joe Biden that was released over the weekend. The bright spot is he leads by two if Trump is convicted. But what if he's not convicted, right? Or what if he's convicted on a case that no one cares about? So I I think they put a a lot of eggs in this basket. In a way, they shouldn't. This shouldn't be how we do our politics, but it might not work out for them either. So right now you have the president of the United States uh, who has Robert Hur investigating his use of classified documents. Word is from the White House, they're extremely worried about this embarrassing the president. Why? You remember those pictures at Mar-a-Lago, mm-hmm. fanned out, put out there by the FBI to make it seem as though Donald Trump has just left crazy documents, classified documents everywhere. It was fanned out by the FBI. 
but they are afraid of the pictures with the Corvette. They are afraid of the University of Delaware having yeah. confidential papers there, more from the University of Pennsylvania and his lawyer's office in Boston. This could come out any day now. Yeah, it'll it'll be an embarrassment. And look, it's, it's not as though everyone does this, but a lot of people do it. The the rules are are fuzzy. You you know you have massive amounts of documents. You're not handling them the way way you should, and then it ends up you know in your bathroom or your garage, which is highly embarrassing where it shouldn't be. But it's also not you know no one was well, the foreign agents weren't going to the bathrooms in, in Mar-a-Lago, and nor were they going to Joe Biden's garage. So it says uh, officials have been planning to release the report as early as this week, though prosecutors could decide to push it back. According to people familiar with the case, in recent weeks, the report has been reviewed by intelligence officials to navigate how much to reveal of these documents. And here's what they're mad at. They say that Biden gave into a uh, two day interview at the White House and they expected some type of verdict after that. Instead, they've held on to it all. They thought it was going to be released the next day. What did he say? What was your explanation? I don't know how a two day interview with Joe Biden works. These days, how, which means how two get, hours. Yeah. How, how can he get he through only a, two works day an hour a day? Right. <laughs> so uh, right now, do you think that he will be the nominee? Yes, I do. Joe, Joe Biden. Gonna, yeah. It's yeah. ultimately going to be his decision. I talk to people every day. It's like there's no way he's going to be. The yeah, nominee. I, I know. And I know why people think that. I mean, you look at what he's you know, that Hamas flub yesterday. And you're like, you how could the they name do this? Of Hamas. Yeah. How could they do this? But unless he examines his conscience and thinks, you know what, I'm just not up for this, which I don't think is going to happen. He's going to be the nominee because there's no way to leverage him out. What are they going to have, like an open contested convention in August when staring down the, the, the barrel of a, a Donald Trump candidacy that seems really potent? I don't think so. Thanks, Rich Larry. Thank you, Brian. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we're coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Anthony Munoz will be with us. You know, he's probably the best offensive tackle in the history of the National Football League, played a couple of Super Bowls, inducted uh, into the Hall of Fame. He'll be putting some perspective on the first Las Vegas Super Bowl on Sunday. He's always got a great message. He's very uh, pro-fatherhood and mentorship. Uh, and David Bonson's in studio. He's uh, CEO of the Bonson Group, managing partner and author of the new book, uh, full-time work and the meaning of life. And before we get to David, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. So that is exactly why CENTCOM is doing the assessment and review that it is right now to determine what else we need to do, what happened, why this attack happened, how this drone was able to get through, how it was able to evade air defenses. Right. How do they? Maybe uh, we have the answer to that, Sabrina Singh of the Pentagon. Middle East madness. Facts emerging from the Jordan 22 drone strike. The Tower 22 drone strike in Jordan. Well, it turns out three Americans are dead, 40 are wounded, and we might have been totally unprotected. No missile defense. We'll get to the bottom of that. Number two. The Court of Appeals wants the trial to proceed before the election, and that's an inherently political decision. I'm continually amazed by the ability of Trump's opponents to, to shoot themselves in the foot. 2024, that's Sal Weisenberg, of course. From the Trump trials to the Biden's long-awaited own classified document investigation, we'll talk about it. Plus, Nevada results that were truly embarrassing for Nikki Haley. Number one. I understand some Republicans are saying, we don't need any changes to law. Then why did we write, H- write HR2? 
Why did, we, why did we do that? Why didn't Trump just shut down the border if you just think we don't need any changes to lie? He couldn't. He had to make a deal with Mexico, and he did a great job doing that. Well, that was uh, Dan Crenshaw of Texas, Republican, unprecedented. The border emergency takes several twists and turns from the impeachment to reform. Americans have been affected by Biden's, uh, ter- by Biden's terrible border policies. We will review it. It's pretty amazing, too, to see the violence just raging in these cities. And a lot of it, of course, the uh, overwhelmed in terms of accommodations, all because this uh, border is broken and most of them are Democratic cities. Uh, David Bonson, welcome back. It's so good to be with you. Uh, Dave, where'd you get your idea for your book? Um, it was really a byproduct of my observation that even as we see things falling apart politically and all these different categories, that culturally, even if like my party was winning all the elections I wanted, I don't think will be going. I don't think things will be going well until America recaptures a love affair with work, the dignity of work, the value. This is important economically. It's important to get productivity back, but it's important for the soul of America. People are depressed. And they're not depressed because of who's president. They're depressed because they don't find meaning in their jobs. Um, so what makes you think now is more of a challenge than ever? Isn't it the nature of your job that gets you, gives you the feeling of satisfaction? Well, I do believe that's true, that uh, the nature of your job, that I think God made us to work and that it, there's dignity that comes from it. It's part of the uniquely American tradition, a very strong work ethic. Right. And uh, over the last 20 years, there's been a meaningful uh, diminishment. And you know where I think a lot of it came from is this idea of retirement. Now, as a lot of baby boomers are entering retirement, we have really spent 30, 40 years with this implicit message, Brian, that the reason you work is to not have to do it anymore. Right. And also what you do, uh, maybe because you grow up, uh, if you're growing up in a, uh, in a depressive situation, single parents and you're forced to live off the government, it's not a great start. It's not a great message when you get free money. Well, it's not. It incentivizes people to not work. And even if it can, for a certain period of time, cover bills, it doesn't cover the bigger hole they have, which is not a hole in their wallet. It's a hole in their soul, in their heart, in their mind, in the things that they're made for, to be meaningful, to be productive, to be useful. And so that stuff's somewhat cliche. A lot of people already believe that. My argument, though, is that we have three different generations struggling with it in a different way. I don't like 65-year-olds leaving the workforce entirely. Now, look, they're going to golf more. They're going to spend more time with grandkids. They have more financial freedom. Obviously, I'm all for that. I don't suggest the 84-year-old works a construction site. But why be totally disconnected from the workforce? Why not still mentor? Why not still add your experience and expertise? Okay, I'm going to turn 50 this year. I run a large, successful business. I don't need a lot of opinions from 26-year-olds. I want 66-year-olds giving me their wisdom experience. The older generation, I think, leaving the workforce is leaving a hole. And then you have all these 30-year-olds saying the whole point of this is just to not do it anymore. It strips them of that meaning. I know some major financial firms make you retire at maybe 62, 63, make room for but below, right? All kinds of firms, not just financial, all kinds of different industries. I think that whole idea of a retirement mentality is... Is a very uh, negative one. I'm all for financial freedom. I'm all for building margin and convenience and flexibility in one's life. But yeah, I think the idea of forcing people out the door, it's doing a really bad thing for us culturally. How did we lose that love of work? Um, I think it's because we lost a spiritual connection in the country. I think that a lot of this is very religious, very moral, very cultural. Uh, the great society. The Protestant the, work ethic. Yeah. I think that when the New Deal 
the Great Society and, yes, the sexual revolution. When these things all came on about 50 years ago in tandem, it came with it a removal of church and transcendent beliefs of faith from our culture. How does, uh, how does the New Deal hurt faith? I think the New Deal was made possible by the fact that we were relying more on government to do things when we used to rely more on communities, individuals, families, private enterprise. And then out of that, but the New Deal was early stages of it. There was a lot of determinism and individualism and, and good spirit throughout World War II. But then we really, in the 1960s, threw the baby out with the bathwater. And that was the combination of great society and the sexual revolution. So David Bonson's here, and uh, David's got a great job. You're the CEO of your own firm. When did you start liking work? I started liking work when I was 12 years old, and my dad said, you don't get a Commodore 64 computer unless you pay for it. And my dad was a pastor. He didn't have the money to buy me one if he wanted to. And if he did have the money, he wouldn't have wanted to. And I went out and mowed lawns and washed cars and painted decks until I had enough money to go buy my own Commodore. And I said, I like this. This is a good incentive. And I feel useful. I feel meaningful. Do you think the pandemic also made people look around and go, wait, I I got off the treadmill. And I don't really hate it. You know, what was I doing? That job wasn't rewarding. And how did I get into insurance? How did I end up in construction? I don't know if I'm going to rush back. You know, it's really sad, Brian. I think that happened for a little while. And I think now people are questioning their questioning. I think people are reversing back the other way. At first, it seemed like a great idea to stay at home all day, uh, not have to get dressed like a grown-up, not go out of the house. But, you know, there's a certain routine. It's the way I feel about work from office as well. I think this whole remote work thing has done a lot of damage to people. There's a benefit to getting out, going to the gym, going to restaurants, saying hi to your barista at the coffee shop, and just sort of being in the game a little bit. Half of life is showing up, and I think people stopped showing up during COVID, and it was an absolutely terrible part of the policy of shutdowns. You know, there was futurists that used to say that that the way to get rid of traffic, the way cities going to depopulate is that people don't need to go to work in the future. But you're saying that interaction, the interaction is with – that's the intangible that other people don't understand. How are you going to be mentored? How are you going to yeah. be a role model? That's right. How are you going to be able to observe how the, how the vice president got to be vice president? If he's not going to – or she's not going to turn around and give a speech, you observe. You see how they act. You hear about yeah. their story. You go out to lunch. You don't just wait for the Christmas party. You ask questions. You interact. You talk to people in the hallway. You talk to people at the water cooler. All of those things. It's not cliche. It's real life. The mentorship word you used is a very important one because I see a lot of boomers, a lot of Gen Xers, they have things they can teach. They can't teach it on Zoom to someone who isn't there to ask for it. And one thing I'll say for Gen Z, different than Gen Y, the millennials, Gen Z asks questions. They want to be mentored. They can't get it if they're 26 years old. If you're at a company that is allowing you to work from home and yet their office is open, go to the office so you can be seen Mm -hmm. and so you can see others and ask questions. So how do you think the economy is doing overall? I think the economy has certain parts that are clearly doing very well. I think that there is real economic growth uh, that is somewhat happening from the industrial side of the economy, and I think that's a good thing. Now, the problems are, of course, still that certain higher prices have been entrenched for lower income people and that we're not building new houses. you got to get housing prices lower. And people say, wait a second, housing prices lower is good for the economy? Of course it is. It's not good for the person who wants to go sell their home in a couple of years. But what in the world? Did, where did this idea come from that that's what good housing policy is, is artificially propping prices up? That's the biggest issue for me. We have to build new houses.
Right. Uh, also, you want to be able to sell yours. If interest rates come down, right now everybody's frozen in place, aren't they? Everyone's frozen. It's not just buyers that are frozen, although they're frozen because it's too unaffordable and rates are too high. But sellers are frozen because they don't want to replace a 3% rate with a 7% rate. This is what you get when you ask a Federal Reserve to be so interventionist in the economy. The Fed has played such a big role that they go too low and that distorts things, then they go too high and that distorts things. And we have got to get off this reliance on the Federal Reserve to be the god of the economy. So uh, Kevin O'Leary also weighed in on this, and he talked about the average everyday person not feeling those good numbers yet. Cut 26. We have a massive increase in basic rates. So mortgages went from 3.5 to 7 to 8%. Affordability got much tougher in rent and protein and gas and all kinds of other issues increased with inflation rates of about 33 percent. But the average wage in America barely budged. It's about 62,000. So you've got this massive squeeze on a whole cohort of people who all of a sudden leave college and say, wow, is it ever expensive to live? What happened here? Well, life happened. Every generation is looking backwards saying, can I do better than my parents? This cohort is in trouble because they got whacked by some hardcore inflation that has not gone away. And and we have not felt inflation in a long time. See, the thing is, is on the things that he's talking about with houses and rent (laughs) and student loans, the cost of tuition, that's the only place we have been feeling inflation for 40 years where government intervenes, health care, housing, basically a higher education. Now, yeah, that's right. Eggs and, and, and milk and so forth saw bigger inflation, but that inflation rates come way lower. I will tell you this. A 25-year-old who gets out of college, has $300,000 of student debt, gets a good job and can't afford to buy a home and uh, has this massive student loan payment, they are not going to be thinking about the milk and the eggs. They're going to be thinking about the cost of a house mm-hmm. and the cost of their debt to pay off the student loan. Those are the two low-hanging fruit for that middle-class, younger generation. Lower-income people, it's all about groceries, things like that. Right, and so ex- explain inflation. See, what people should understand. So uh, all of a sudden I look up and my uh, inflation is at 10%. Okay, hard. Then it's going down. The inflation went up only 7%. But does it build on the 10% it already went up? So it only went up 7% from the 10 it increased. Then if it only goes up 3%, it right. be like, oh, inflation's going down. But it right. goes on top of the 10 and on top of the 7. So you have to ask yourself when you're doing that math what's going on with wages. Okay, because if some if costs go up 10 percent a year and wages go up 10 percent a year and it just does it every year forever, nobody ever notices a difference. The problem is some industries don't see wages and prices go up in tandem. Others do. And there are times when real wages go down. What right. that means is that your cost of, uh, of living goes up higher than your wages increase. So far since Biden took office, wages are down about 2 percent, not 30 percent, 10 percent, 9 percent relative to inflation. So it's uh, but over the last two years, real wages have gone up. Wages have gone up more than that inflation rate. But you are right that disinflation means inflation is still going higher, but not by as much. Right Right. now, we're at two to three percent inflation. You're not going to ever see prices go lower. You're not going to see deflation unless you have a massive recession. Prices don't deflate unless the really bad things are happening, like the Great Depression, the Great Recession, or, God forbid, Japan. All right, which is is in what? 30 years of no prices going higher. Are people happy? Because they've had no economic growth for 30 years. And the population is decreasing. Uh, here's President Biden on admitting the numbers look good, but not everybody's feeling it. I know, we know, we have a lot more to do. 
Not, ev not everyone's feeling the benefits of our investments and progress yet. But inflation is now lower in America than any other major economy in the world. In the world. And in recent weeks, we're seeing real evidence that the American consumers are feeling real confidence in the economy that we're beginning to build. Yeah, so he knows he's got to pull back on the Bidenomics is great because yeah. he spent forty million over the summer telling us it was great and he didn't move the needle at all. In fact, Dylan's got thirty percent approval rating on the economy. Yeah, it's going to be very hard for that to change once you get a brand as just not being a great president for the economy. It's hard to change that. I constantly talk about Bush Senior against Bill Clinton back when uh, in the mid nineties that the economy was actually doing quite well in ninety two, and Bush Senior still lost because it was doing so poorly in ninety and ninety one. You couldn't shake the reputation. But what President Biden just said is interesting because people don't need to be told how to feel about the economy. And yet what they did is tried to brand Bidenomics way too early. Now, this whole time, the consumer still been spending. So I don't think that there was this huge, massive pushback. The problem was they tried to say things were going better than they were. And now there's no credibility. The right. messaging is all screwed up. So, David, one more time, the name of your book, Full Time Work and the Meaning of Life. And it is out now, and it is trying to make a case uh, across the board, culturally, economically, politically, and spiritually, for a greater rediscovery of work. And you can follow him at David Bonson, and we can get the book everywhere, right? You bet. All right. Uh, David Bonson, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. All right. Uh, back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade. And also, uh, keep in mind, this hour, we're also going to be joined by uh, Anthony Munoz uh, out in Las Vegas. you listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Right after I was elected, I went to a, what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. It was in, it was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean from France, looked at me and said, uh, said you know, what, why, how, how long are you back for? First of all, Mitterrand from Germany. I mean France. So that's the part he corrected. That's like saying, I'm for child labor. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm for child marriage. <laughs> for a quick history lesson, Mitterrand was president of France from 1981 to 95 and died in 96. So if that meeting happened in 2020, Biden would have been talking to a dried out old corpse and Mitterrand the same. So that's a little of uh, Greg Gutfeld last night. We were I was on Gutfeld. Uh, it's always an interesting experience. He's never grateful that I'm there. Do you notice that? I think deep down, though, he is. How deep? I mean. Really deep down. Super. I mean, I think it makes him happy to be able to just take so many shots at you. Right. In person. Yes. Uh, Jamie Lissau was there. That's the big attraction. He is so funny. It was right. a really good. Uh, Kennedy also, like, Kennedy's she picked fantastic. up some nuggets that and, everyone just left on the floor and she just knocked it out. And uh, and Kat, too. Yeah, it was a yeah. strong day. Uh, and also, it was kind of weird not being there with Tyrus. I'm usually there with Tyrus. He's usually there to settle the ship. But um, you know what they were able to do is put October, uh, April 27th up. That's going to be when we go back on stage yes. and, and and change people's lives. Is that, that true that everyone claims their lives are changed? They do. It's like they're like before seeing Kilmeade on stage and I, after. They're never the same. They're not. But April 27th in Henderson, Nevada. In Henderson, Nevada. But make a weekend out of it. Go to Vegas for the weekend. And it won't be as expensive as this weekend coming up for Super Bowl. Right. So you'll save money. Yeah, and it's only 20 minutes. Yes, 20 minutes from the Strip. Look at all the things there are to do there. Plus, they have that new, that new immersive. Do you know what that's called, uh, 
Eric, the sphere, you, right? Yeah, the sphere where you two is playing now. Well, no, but you see for the Super Bowl, they've teamed up. So it's going to have all Super Bowl images. But one of the ones I saw, they had a they made it look like the 49ers helmet, just like sitting out there. It's pretty cool. Really? Yeah. You mean out front? Like the sphere was the helmet. I'll find it. Wow. It was neat. Why are they going with 49ers? Well, they, I'm they, sure they had one for the Chiefs, too. Just the image I saw was a Right. I'll tell you, nobody travels like the Chief fans. Well, actually, Eagles fans travel, too. But the Chief fans, I'm sure they're going to outnumber the 49er fans. I don't know, but California's closer. And did you hear about the prices of the boxes? Mama Kelsey said she's not even going to be in a box. She's probably going to be in the stands. How could that be? Have Taylor write a check. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. He gets the protection. He goes long and on his back to ice it is Marquez Valdez Scantling for the second straight week. He catches a long ball. He had two of them against the Bills. 32 yards tonight. Andy Reid looking for his former assistant in Philadelphia. Yeah, he's heading back to the Super Bowl for the fourth time in five years and a chance to become the first team since New England of 2003 and four to go back to back. Wow, and that was, uh, it wasn't that dramatic sounding because Kansas City was on the road. I thought this was the year they were not going to get to the Super Bowl. Boy, was I wrong. Now they're going to be in the Super Bowl and they're going to be facing against the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, so uh, it was, it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be a fantastic game by two fantastic coaching staffs. Anthony Munoz joins us now, uh, Hall of Famer, maybe the greatest offensive lineman ever. It's been the Super Bowl before, uh, 13 seasons in the NFL. He wears the gold jacket everywhere, at least he should. Anthony, welcome back. Brian, thank you. Good to be, always good to be with you. Thank so, you wait so a second. much. So your role is the Chief Football Relations Officer with the Hall of Fame? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I've been in the Hall of Fame for 25 years, about a year and a half ago. Well, about a little over two years ago, we got a new president, and the board decided to create a new position to uh, work alongside the new president, Jim Porter. And, you know, being on the board, they asked me to be on the search committee. I said, well, let's let another Hall of Famer be on the search committee. I'm on a couple boards. And they put the search committee together, and after about two weeks, they came to me and said, a lot of the board members are recommending you for this new position. I said, what's this new position? They said, we're, we're pretty sure it's going to be called the Chief Football Relationship Officer. I said, well, what it's all about? I mean, you know, give me some information. I might uh, throw my name in the hopper. Well, the first couple of things, no relocation, so I could stay in Cincinnati, no interruption of uh, things I was doing, i.e. my foundation and so forth. And I read through the, the job description, and I said, man, I've been doing this for 20, 25 years. I'd love to represent every part of the Hall of Fame because I love everything about it. My fellow Hall of Famers, the staff, the board, the community up there in Stark County, so they started with the f- about 40 individuals, and uh, when it all was said and done, two of us were interviewed. First time in my life, Brian, at about 63 years old, that I'd ever been interviewed for a job, <laughs> hour and a half uh, with the committee, hour and a half corn ferry. And they offered me the job, and a year and a half ago, I decided to take the job. And now, not only a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, but an employee working alongside Jim Porter. And, I mean, it's been a, a phenomenal run. Uh, the things we're doing, media, uh corporate partners. We've met with the majority of the NFL owners. Uh, so it, it's been a lot of fun for myself getting involved in that aspect of it. I know my son's involved in the USL, USFL, now USL, uh, UFL, uh, and they played their championship game, Canton. Yep. And yeah, that's, uh, uh, really moving. Uh, they make sure everybody goes through and they people just love it. 
Well, that's the, the part of the, you know, construction with the, the village, which is a separate entity, you know, in addition to the Hall of Fame. And, you know, they put millions and millions into the you know, Tom Benson Hall of Fame Stadium there. That's where the game's being played. It, it's amazing what's being brought there. There's a new indoor water park that's almost completed. There'll be a hotel. There's retail. You have Shula's restaurant there. You have a – so there's a lot of things going on there on campus, and it's pretty cool to have championship games like that. Uh, you know, we have the, the Black College game, you know, uh, early in the season, September that we have there. So a lot of action going on in Stark County right there in Canton, Ohio, the, where, you know, football started right there in Canton, Ohio. So uh, it's fun to not only be a member with my fellow Hall of Famers, but also uh, get up into Canton quite a few times a year. And uh, it's, a, it's a great second home, as we call it. So, Anthony, uh, did you get yourself – are you in Las Vegas now? Yes, I got here Monday. Uh, have events all week. Monday night I had an event. Went to a charity event with a couple college buddies. You might know these names, Marcus Allen and Ronnie Lott. Okay, they let me jot a- that down. It doesn't ring a bell. Okay, wait a second. <laughs> now I remember. Oh, wow. I think okay. we played a little bit of college, a little bit of uh, you know pro ball. And then last night uh, I had a nice recognition by uh, Inca Cola. They put together uh, a nice event at the House of Blues. Uh, and then uh, today I'll be on Radio Row all morning. And then uh, we have some friends here. So tonight we're just going to take some time, go to dinner. Uh, tomorrow we have the Hall of Fame we've done several years. We call it our Salute to Service. And we'll start out with the VA Hospital. Uh, tomorrow morning, go to Creech uh, Military Base, and then, uh, you know, so we do that. And then, uh, you know, of course, uh, Friday's our Hall of Fame Merlin Olson luncheon. I think we have close to 60 Hall of Famers there. Uh, corporate uh, civic leaders will be at this luncheon. Uh, Saturday morning, I'll have the uh, Athletes in Action Breakfast, which I do every year. We'll be giving out the Bart Starr Award, which is uh, Minka Fitzpatrick Jr. from the uh, Pittsburgh Steelers. And I'm thankful and uh, honored to be a recipient a long time ago of that award. And uh, so, yeah, so we got uh, a full schedule, but not crazy busy. And we'll enjoy Vegas. And I'm going to stay a couple of days after the game. And I got a college buddy and his wife coming up to spend time. We'll have to get a couple right. rounds of golf in. Absolutely. So, Anthony, the other thing is kind of weird, too, though, that you knew Bart Starr, right? You guys crossed paths as well yeah, as Merlin Olsen. So Bart Starr, got to know him really well. Of course, uh, you know, he was always at the breakfast when he was with us, him and Cherry. Uh, great ambassador. I mean, you know, winner of the first two Super Bowls, a man of character and faith. And, I mean, to, for this award to carry his name is amazing. Merrill Nelson, Brian, to me, I look at guys that I've gotten to know the 25 years I've been in the Hall of Fame. A lot of great individuals, not only great football players, but even better people. And uh, Merlin Olson was just a sweetheart of a man. I mean, the guy was gentle and he was caring and a big man, but even a bigger heart. I miss him all the time, uh, but got to know Merlin Olson and uh, his wife, Susan. Uh, so, yeah, miss both those guys tremendously. Well, actor, too. People know Merlin Olson, who are non sports fans, is an actor, uh, and he was a great broadcaster. So, so Anthony, uh, how do you feel about, before we get into the game, there's a move in California to say uh, you can't play football till you're in eighth grade. How do you feel about that? You know what? Uh, you know, I didn't play youth football, tackle football. I played flag football, but I have some grandsons that are that have been playing, uh, you know, tackle football for years, and they're in junior high right now. Three, four years they've been playing. And I'll say this, Brian: football is not for everyone, and even at a young age. Uh, I look at youth football at that age they are trying to eliminate, and the guys don't hit each other very hard. Uh, I know several years ago, looking at a statistic, lower body injuries, head injuries, were a lot more in soccer. And soccer is a great game, 
uh, compared to, you know, tackle football. So I have no problem. You know, I think kids play that sport. They learn a lot about themselves, a lot about teamwork, a lot about other individuals. Uh, So I hope it doesn't happen. I hope they can continue to play. Like I said, there's some parents out there that, you know, don't see that being for their kids. Maybe they, you know, they steer them into flag football. But uh, I, I just would hate to see that eliminate for those kids that love to play youth football. You know what I just love, too, in New Jersey, they're doing it for the first time. Uh, they're they're making women girls flag football a varsity sport. That to me is one of the best things that could ever happen to football. I tell you what, Brian, I've had the chance uh, yesterday to be with Deanna Flores, who is a quarterback for the Mexico City Championship flag football team, and the traction that flag football is getting. I'm excited because, like I just said, kids are playing. Not only young men, but young women are playing football. And that is getting traction. It's going to be an Olympic sport, not only in the States, but globally. Flag football is getting really, really big. So to hear that, I'm excited about individuals getting the chance to, right. to learn and play you know, through flag football. Talking about this game, uh, I just think that this is uh, two coaches that are not going to let the moment get too big for them. And in the case of Kyle Shanahan, evidently he's living with his Super Bowl loss where he was up by 10 of the fourth every day. Uh, and his competitive nature uh, has him really focused on this rematch with Kansas City. And, of course, the coaching scheming, adjusting at halftime with teams as equal is going to matter. How do you see this playing out? Well, I think it's a, it's a game of two excellent football teams. Uh, as you mentioned, the coach at Andy Reid, he's been around for a while. He's one of the best coaches in, in the league. And shot Kyle Shanahan, you know, one of the young bucks and doing extremely well. And calling the plays, uh, right? And calling the plays, that's right. Uh, you know, and the guy does a phenomenal job. Of course, he comes from a great uh, bloodline, Mike Shanahan. You know, of course, his dad coached at the Bron- Broncos, won championships there. Uh, but I think it's, it is going to be a great game of chess match. Uh, but also see when you have the players to do that, that makes a difference. You know, uh, on both sides of the football, offensively and defensively for both sides, they are loaded with very talented football players. Of course, uh, you know, you, we talk about the coaches. You have the older coach and Andy Reid who's been around winning championships. You've got Kyle Shanahan. You mentioned that you know, loss that he's, I'm sure he still thinks about it, that wants to win a championship. But then you got a quarterback who, you know, has a chance to be one of the best, you know, the Brady's, the Montana's, you know, in uh, in Mahomes. And then you got a quarterback, you know, Mr. Irrelevant, uh, who was the last pick in the draft, but he was drafted. So I look at it, the guy was drafted, having a phenomenal year. So you have both ends of the spectrum there. And again, both those guys have tremendous uh, right. weapons on offense and defensively. Uh, you know, as I look at this team, uh, this game, it's going to be a great game. But I continue to look at this Chiefs secondary, who they have in the secondary. They're low, I think with McDuffie and Sneed and, and those guys, I give the side edge to the, to the Chiefs with that secondary because of the way they've been playing, that in coverage, tackling the way they hit you, and they got their work cut out for them. But I, I give the Chiefs a slight edge with their secondary. And what about Vegas now? They're adjusting to it. Uh, you've been to so many Super Bowls. You played in two, right? I played in two, yep. Pontiac, Michigan, the first cold weather game, and then I played in Miami, Florida. Uh, up until COVID, the Tampa Super Bowl, I'd say I've probably been in about all but that one, maybe close to 40 uh, wow. Super Bowl sites. Not all the games, but the sites. So I've, I've seen how cities have run things. And I'm curious to see, because I've been here for different events in Vegas, I'm curious to see as this week plays plays uh, on how they continue to handle this. How do you think? What do you quiet. think so far? 
so far it's been pretty quiet. I mean, usually by Wednesday, things are getting hopping, but I'll see the next couple of days. So far it's been good, been able to get around the city without any problem. But like I said, mm-hmm. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday are really the telling story about a city and how they handle it. So uh, I'll wait and uh, see what happens, but I think they'll, they'll do a good job. Anthony Muno is with us now. Anthony, there's a little bit of a debate on, like, how you handle today's player. You have Brian Dable, who was coach of the year last year, but this year everything kind of fell apart. And the whole screaming in the coaches' faces and the players' faces when they make a mistake, whether it's their star player or an also-ran equal opportunity offender. And some have said that that's just not the way these players want to be treated. And then you have the cerebral time, like Kyle Shanahan having all the success he has. Do you believe the players changed and the scream in your face, old-fashioned football, um, you know, treat you like a drill sergeant, is, is no longer flying with today's athlete? I think probably the majority, but I think you, there's still some that, uh, you know, value that and, and are motivated that way. And the, the same way the coaches, I think coaches, and I know you have a lot of players on the team, you need to know how to motivate different players. You know, if you have a, a young man, and I'll, I'll look, let's go to the college level first, and that's what I kind of look at. If you have a young man that comes out of the inner city, survival mode, single parent, then you have another kid that comes out from suburbia, you know, uh, states, and he's got two parents, you're going to motivate them differently, I believe. And, and you have to know that in the NFL. You know what buttons to push. You know, even when I was playing, my coach knew that he wasn't going to scream and yell at me. And there was other guys that, you know, he had to take his size 12 and kind of use it now and then. Uh, you know, you, you have to know your players. But I still think it's like parenting, I think. You have to have those boundaries. Kids, players are going to test you, try to get outside those boundaries. And consistency is the big thing. If it's not screaming and yelling, you still got to be firm. Hold players accountable, but also encourage them. Uh, understood. Uh, the whole Pro Bowl thing, for you, how many Pro Bowls you make? I made 11. You had to play those games. And I know you that wasn't popular. But what's happening now, I, I just can't get into it. I mean, they're yeah. just playing flag football. Yeah. They don't seem to care. Um, you know, skills contest is fine. But, I mean, is this the way to do it? Well, I, I think that's much better than the games they were attempting to play. It was kind of standing around. I was embarrassed to watch that game when they were just standing around. At least now you get to see a little flag football. I mean, I don't watch it. I'm not crazy about it. But you talk about when I was playing. I mean, they were we were playing. I mean, it was, uh, you know, the money wasn't that big. At times, they were, they were kind of dangling a, a, a MVP car in front of those defensive linemen. So they were, they were bringing it pretty good. And uh, I can't remember a Pro Bowl game. Uh, back in the 80s, early 90s, when I wasn't having to play 100%. And, uh, and as you know, someone that has played sports, we know that you know when you're playing 100%, the risk of injury is going to go way down. Injury is part of sports. It's just going to happen. But if you start thinking about it, oh, we got to worry about injury. You can't play. Then I think that's when it happens. But uh, you know what? I am glad they eliminated the game because, to me, that was even more frustrating than what's going on now. But let them, you know, vote for the Pro Bowl. Let them go do community service mm-hmm. in the community. Let them, uh, you know, visit different uh, organizations, schools. Right. Uh, let them do a lot of those type of events to utilize the platform that we have as athletes. So, Anthony, next year in New Orleans, I'm going to be down there. So hopefully we could do this uh, face-to-face and on TV. And then – what I love to do is you get Marcus Allen, Ronnie Lott, you, and then me, just the four of us, and we'll just okay. pal around for like eight hours. Do you think that <laughs> we could do that? And just, I just want to do what the football guys do. I'll wear eye black, whatever it takes. 
Well, you know, you're talking to an offensive, former offensive lineman, so I have no problem with that. I would love to do that. we got to convince, you know, Marcus, the Heisman <laughs> Trophy, the right. MVP Super Bowl, and all. He's got every award. That could, well, you got to sell Lott, me. I think I'll do it. you got to sell What's me. That? Marcus likes me, but you got to sell okay. me to sell me to Ronnie Lott. I will do that. Ronnie and I go back to high school. We competed against each other in high school, and then we played together three years in college. So we're, we're like family. I think I can convince <laughs> Ronnie and Marcus that you and the two, uh, two of them and I will pal around in Vegas. All right. Or, uh, not great. Vegas, but in New Orleans. And it might be a spinoff reality <laughs> show. Uh, so listen, if to get tickets to the Super Bowl breakfast, go to www.superbowlbreakfast.com, and that's the yep. Bart Star. Uh, that's the Bart Star breakfast, right? The uh, the Athletes yep, in Action Caesar's, Super Bowl Caesar's Palace. Yep, that is it. It's uh, Saturday morning. Tony Dungy will be there. Mike Singletary, of course, I mentioned. Micah, uh, Micah Fitzpatrick Jr. is getting the Bart Starr right. Award. So that'll be great. Uh, It'll be, be fun. It'll be a fun event, great event. And if you see Anthony, he's the type of guy, he will take a picture with you. Anthony, thanks so much. Brian, always a pleasure. Look forward to being in person with you next year in New Orleans. All right, absolutely. Anthony Munoz, <laughs> best offensive lineman ever. Back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. There's some movement. There's been a response from the... uh, there's been a response from the opposition, but um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas. Do you believe this? That is the president yesterday. He doesn't ever speak to the press. He wanted to go out and rip Republicans, at which time he got a question, even though he said he'd take no, repu- uh, no questions, about what's going on with this uh, so-called ceasefire in, uh, in Gaza. And here's the deal. Uh, this is what he could have said. It's evidently three stages. It's going to be over the course of four and a half months, 100, uh, 135 days. It'll be 1,500 Palestinian prisoners, uh, 500 of which are serving life, which means they more than likely killed somebody in return for getting, I guess, all of the hostages out that are left, even though they say about 20% are now dead, maybe more uh, of, the, uh, of the Israeli hostages are taken, and there's some Americans uh, mixed in there. Uh, males under 19, then elders, then the sick will be least kind of in that order for 45 days. But the fighting will stop. So, obviously it matters. You don't want to give away too much. You don't want to blow the deal. But you can't forget the name Hamas. And the press, instead of condemning and writing this story and running that clip, gives them the answer. Hamas? Oh, yeah. Hamas. You don't know the name Hamas? Look, I blank sometimes on, on obvious things, but I'm pretty sure they're on that blank of the name Ukraine. He did say Vladimir Putin invaded Iraq and is losing a lot of people in Iraq. I understand Iran and Iraq. Sometimes people do that. But Iraq and Ukraine? Don't get it. I mean, this is the guy in charge. That's why Trump's leading by five. And I, I, I don't know about a ceasefire. It's such a complicated situation. I want all the hostages back. But if Gaza survives, we're going to be right back in the same maze again. From the Fox News radio studios in midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade show. Coming to you from midtown Manhattan or around the country, around the world. 
Uh, maybe the 67,000 illegal immigrants here have radios and are in meter districts. It could up our ratings even more because uh, the, uh, little by little, it seems as though uh, the population in the city is doubling. But no one seems to be shopping. A lot of empty stores still. Uh, a lot going on today. Uh, we're going to be following the President of the United States coming to New York. I'm sure it's a private fundraiser. Uh, we're also tracking the uh, – we're on the eve of the president actually having his case heard as he tries to get back on the ballot in Colorado. They kicked him off. So this hour we're going to be joined by Harris Faulkner. We'll do a simulcast and Martha McCallum. But let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. So that is exactly why CENTCOM is doing the assessment and review that it is right now to determine what else we need to do, what happened, why this attack happened, how this drone was able to get through, how it was able to evade air defenses. Yeah, maybe we didn't even have air defenses. You ever think about that? That is what a story that... We are following here with our Pentagon correspondent, Jennifer Griffin. The Middle East madness continues. As the Gaza hostage deal could be closer, it's a complex deal. I'll let you know what it is. And the Houthi rebel rockets continue. Number two. The Court of Appeals wants the trial to proceed before the election, and that's an inherently political decision. I'm continually amazed by the ability of Trump's opponents to, to shoot themselves in the foot. Let's hope it continues. 2024, from Trump trials to Biden's long-awaited uh, classified document investigation, we'll have the latest. Plus, Nevada results are in. It's embarrassing for Nikki Haley. Number one. I understand some Republicans are saying, we don't need any changes to law. Then why did we write, mm. a, write HR2? Why did, we, why did we do that? Why didn't Trump just shut down the border? If you just think we don't need any changes to law, he couldn't. He had to make a deal with Mexico, and he did a great job doing that unprecedented. That is uh, the border emergency. Now we find out that a million people have come through a million encounters since October 1st. And it turns from now from impeachment of Mayorkas to reform. Will it get done? Americans have been affected by Biden's foreign policies, especially in the inner city. And that's what we're discussing, too. Remember the beatdown those two cops got a couple of weeks ago? Alvin Bragg, when asked, why didn't you put these guys under arrest? Why didn't you set a bail? So we're still acquiring information. My goodness, you know that there is tape of this. We all saw the tape. They are rolling in the the police headquarters on almost every block. Now, I was there eight years ago, and I saw all those cameras. Can you imagine how much they've improved it? So you would see this beat down right on 42nd Street right there as it happens. You would think police officers, lieutenants would call a press conference too, by the way, and make sure these illegal immigrants, this gang of illegal immigrants, obviously ungrateful by definition, would at least be in jail right now. But right now they only got one. They're hunting now uh, for the others. We also hear about this moped gang. Very sophisticated. They'll grab bags and phones, and they get paid for each bag and each phone. At which time they go into the phones, and they got a sophisticated hacker hired now, hired, who goes into your Venmo and your banking account. So as you wonder where your phone is or your bag is, you're getting wiped out. That's what's going on, which is crime is crime. Nobody wants to be a victim of crime. But it makes it so much worse when it turns out that none of these people belong here. So that, to me... Is, is what is really getting to Joe Biden's numbers because his collapsed border, his collapsed border is affecting these cities, including Chicago, including Philadelphia, including San Francisco, uh, and of course uh, Los Angeles. But that has a lot to do, the moped gangs, has a lot to do with uh, the mayors in these cities and the fact that they are sanctuary cities. Mayor Eric Adams is now also defending his $53 million prepaid uh, card program that was on the cover of the New York Post. 
He said the program offers 500 migrants an experimental plan, uh, $12 worth of food per day, although families will receive more. He said, quote, we have a pilot program with 500 people that are giving them food cards. So instead of debit cards, instead of having to deliver food and have people throw out the food, we're seeing uh, wasted food. They don't like it. And now they get to pick it out themselves. But it's at a great cost, especially when you compare it to what veterans get and what the, what the homeless get in New York City. So there is a, a real mess here. And you can't blame the governor of Texas for making the national pro- his problem a national problem. But now Joe Biden is trying to do a jiu-jitsu and say because there's no agreement on a bipartisan uh, border deal, it is now the Republicans' fault. Cut three. It's been an extraordinary effort by Senators Lankford, Murphy, and Sinema. The result of all this hard work is a bipartisan agreement that represents the most fair, humane reforms in our immigration system in a long time, and the toughest set of reforms to secure the border ever. All indications are this bill won't even move forward to the Senate floor. Why? A simple reason. Donald Trump. Because Donald Trump thinks it's bad for him politically. Therefore, he doesn't, even though it helps the, the, the country, he's not for it. He'd rather weaponize this issue than actually solve it. A couple of things. Uh, he didn't like the plan. If you don't like the plan, it doesn't mean you don't want to fix the border. What's going to happen is there are some people that might be persuaded that President Trump said don't do the border deal because I don't want to make Biden look good. But more people are going to look at the last three and a half years and say who totally broke the border, who actually to reverse the remain in Mexico, who got rid of Title 42 without a replacement, who got rid of third country apply for citizenship, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, and who was not enforcing the law, Joe Biden, who had no interest in visiting the border unless he was berated and uh, harassed into it and showed up once. They sanitized the whole thing. It hasn't been back since. Joe Biden. Who dropped the ball when they were given the bar, uh, the border czar status? Kamala Harris. When we come back, I'm going to do a segment with Harris Faulkner, and you'll do you'll see a simulcast. You'll finally get to see what I look like, uh, and then uh, we'll take some calls on the back end of that. I see about seven are up there already. One eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. Be patient. I know you have a lot to say. Brian Kilmeade Show. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back. I'm going to be on with Harris Faulkner shortly. Uh, we're, we do want to get to uh, what happened in uh, Nevada last night, and that is it looks like Nikki Haley got uh, outvoted by none of the above. Uh, Donald Trump was not on the primary. There's some controversy between the party running the caucus tomorrow and the primary run by the state on Tuesday. Republicans couldn't come to an agreement, so Trump said, sign me up for the caucus. And um, Nikki Haley said, I'm not doing either. Uh, Excuse me, I'm going to do the primary. And she did it and still lost by 20 points. I don't know what the strategy is. Why would you ever give up Nevada? This is a state that you have to win to win the election. And at the very least, if you lose it, you get your name out there. So if you get the nomination, you you got a ground game in Nevada. Trump lost it by one point last time, and I think that he's got a legitimate shot at winning it this time. So the caucus will be unopposed, but see what Trump gets in terms of a groundswell of support then leading up to South Carolina. So let's listen into Harris Falk, and you'll hear my introduction. Brian Kilmeade is standing by in his radio studio. Let's set it up first. The House Judiciary Committee unveiled what it calls evidence, which shows the feds told big banks to track private customer transactions. 
And in that January hearing, which we watched and covered and also learned, that the banks were told to look out for certain key words that the feds called extremism indicators. Remember, they were terms like Trump, Biden, Antifa, and retailers like Dick's Sporting Goods, Bass Pro Shops, and Cabela's. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called to Capitol Hill just yesterday repeatedly dodged questions. Ah, but she did not deny it. Watch. Have you instructed banks and financial institutions to provide this information? Well, FinCEN job is to work with financial institutions. Are they instructing them, financial institutions, to search Americans' legal transactions in attempts to surveil their purchases? I I promise a thorough look into everything. Well, this is really concerning. Yeah, not just concerning. Steve Forbes says it's wildly dangerous. American people feel and fear that more and more of our freedoms are being taken away. They want to take everything away that makes life worth living, like having dishwashers that work and shower heads that work and things like that. So uh, you take something like a digital currency. uh, They're going to try to bring that in a few years where they'll know every penny you spend everywhere every day. It's tyranny. Brian Kilmeade, co-host of Fox and Friends, host of the Brian Kilmeade radio show, which we are simulcasting on right now. Right. Hello, radio listeners. And host of the One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Uh, Brian, why do they need to know if I went to Dick's Sporting Goods? Well, you know why, Harris? Because if you went to Dick's Sporting Goods and happened to be in Washington, you're in trouble on January 6th. They're going to use that in the auspices of going to these banks and they say, hey, listen, I can't make you give me this information, but... I'm the government, and I'd like that information. And our, our, our be the, uh, tap into your patriotism to help us out. Because if you were in Washington and maybe went to the Trump rally and then had gone to Dick's Sporting Goods and bought a gun instead of cleats or bought cleats instead of a gun, and then you oh, decide to go to Washington, saying. they're going to try to put them all together, or Cabela's or any of these other places, yeah. uh, the Bass uh, Pro Shops, or that's how they think they profile Trump supporters. That's the word. That's a word. It's profile. Because maybe I, because I have children who are athletes, would go to Dick's Sporting Goods to pick up an extra tennis racket cover or some gymnastics gear. Like, but you're going to scoop everybody up. But they're, they're gaining more information than right. just about January 6th because, you know, they don't throw out that information. So now they say, oh, well, I know how Harris or Brian shops. Absolutely. And, they, and why do they need that? What, what power does that give them? Well, with the power that gives in the auspices of investigating January 6th, I assume. We don't have all the answers. The fact that Janet Yellen doesn't have the answer means they're doing it. And we had Fox Digital with this story two weeks ago. Now mm-hmm. we finally got the answer to Janet Yellen right there, front and center. But I, this is what I, I worry about. You know, when 9-11 happened, we had to find out who the terrorists were here. We had to unwind this Hamas and Hezbollah group that were here. And we went in and we started tracking some of their movements and their transactions. And we did unwind a lot of the financing. We never thought this stuff was going to be used on us. And now the scary thing is a lot of those same methods seem to be used on us. We're not the terrorists. I understand the January 6th, nothing good about it. I got it, understood it. But this is all they're focused on. Period. I've never seen such resourcefulness in pursuing uh, one day, a couple of hours, as bad as it was. They are still investigating like there's no other crimes, like we don't have thousands pouring yeah. across our, uh, our border every single day. No, it's, it's so true. And as I pointed out, it's scooped up more than just those people. 
who might have been in Washington, D.C. Right. I mean, the, the, it scooped up everybody who went to those retailers. And by the way, that was an abbreviated list of words and retailers that I gave for the interest of time. We have a bigger graphic that shows all of it. And I bet half of America shops at those, probably more and, than that. At those and places. Harris, can I bring this up, too? If my bank gave over information to the federal government without telling me, I'm pretty Ooh. sure I could go retain a lawyer. Uh, that's that's not cool. There's that part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Get a load of this. An energy watchdog group wants to know exactly what was going on inside the offices of climate czar John Kerry. You know, he's leaving by the end of late winter, they tell us. The group just filed a freedom of information lawsuit against the Biden administration over this. And the lawsuit says, in part, for nearly three years, Kerry has been jet setting on the International Climate Conference circuit while sending taxpayers the bill. The American people are on the receiving end of countless green mandates and rules, gas stove bans and skyrocketing utility bills with no opportunity for consent or input. And many of these decisions are hatched in John Kerry's office. It is our hope, the lawsuit says, that this litigation will finally bring to light the information we deserve to know. The Boston Herald, through its own FOIA request, found that John Kerry's staff costs taxpayers more than $4 million a year, with the bulk of his policy analysts making six-figure salaries. Now, are you feeling benefits from this? Not yet. And I still think he was unclear and unwilling, <laughs> unwilling to cooperate along the way. We know this, too. He was former secretary of state. Why was he always involved in all these meetings prior? We know about his relationships in, in, hmm. uh, with Iran. And we know about him traipsing through Europe saying, don't worry, Trump is just there for a while. He's going to be impeached. Just hold on to your hat. He was basically working against the State Department under Trump. And now he gets this mysterious job as climate czar. And he's just about everywhere important in the world, flying with a huge budget. You saw $4.3 million. And now John Podesta, another dicey character who seems to be involved in every suspicious thing going on with the Democratic Party, dating back to the Clinton years, is now taking over. He was in charge of implementing the climate, rub, the climate provisions of the mm -hmm. Inflation Reduction Act. So now he gets this mysterious climate czar title. My sense... Trump won't have that if he wins, or Nikki Haley's not going to retain that if she's victorious. That is a Biden-centric uh, czarship, which I believe yeah. has to start being transparent. That's why they're getting sued. Wow. Well, uh, what could they do about the czar who's in charge of the border? <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's a no-show job. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we'll move to this. Another foreign policy <clears throat> mistake for the Biden administration, this time sparking a retraction and an apology. Conflicting information over whether they alerted Iraqi leaders before U.S. attacks on Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps inside Iraq. Here's how it all unfolded. And on Iraq, uh, Phil, um, uh, uh, we did uh, inform uh, the Iraqi government uh, prior to the strikes of coming. As for this specific response on Friday, uh, there was not a pre-notification. We informed the Iraqis immediately after the strikes occurred. I deeply apologize for the, uh, the error, uh, and I regret that any confusion that it caused. It was based on information we had or that it was provided to me uh, in those early hours after the strikes. Turns out that information was uh, incorrect, and, uh, and I certainly regret the error. It's like a movie moment. Are you lying then? Are you lying now? I mean, what is that? Well, what was the controversy 
when they finally decided to hit when they were ready after three of our three Americans were killed in Jordan and 40 were injured, many of which were serious. What was, mm-hmm. the, what was the word? The word is we're going to hit when we're ready. And then yeah. the criticism was you gave them so much notice, including the Iraqi <laughs> Revolutionary Guard. You, all you hit was infrastructure. You didn't hit people. Wow. And then when Kirby plays into it by saying we gave the Iraqis a heads up, that mm-hmm. furthers the narrative. So someone's got to back out. And to me, Admiral Kirby probably had it right originally. Why? Because the militias have nothing to do with the Iraqi government. What oh, do we want to do with Iraq? We want to stay on their good side because we want to keep a presence there in Iraq to watch all our enemies up close and personal. We've got 2,500. We're already in negotiations to get out. So they're under pressure to not let us bomb their militias in that area. So more than likely, we, we did give them a heads up, which mm-hmm. I'm sure there's people in the Iraqi government that told the militias that allowed many of them to survive uh, the 80-plus oh. hits we did in the region. So... The bigger story, I think, is Jordan, that 22, Tower 22, there might not have been missile defense for our troops while they slept. Yeah. That's a huge story. How That's dare huge. you draft our people, put them in harm's way, and not give them proper defense? I, I mean, the, the Secretary of Defense needs to be doing these news conferences now. He's, he needs to be standing up there and taking the questions rather than anybody else we would be seeing. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, my team is telling me, your team is too, we cannot be together after this moment because we're both simulcasting and you have to go. So thank you to your listeners. See you in the hall, Harris. All right. (laughs) Thank you. See you around. I appreciate it. Yeah, and we were up against it, right, Allison? We didn't really have much time. Is that correct? Yeah, this is uh, up against the bottom of the hour. We got pretty much a hard break. But yeah, I didn't hear the music because I was in number two, but we are at the end of it. Did that make you nervous? Not yet. We still had a whole 30 seconds. Oh, yeah, 30 seconds? Ask Eric. He's the one pushing all the buttons. I would have probably done a lockout and then continued with Harris. Would that have been disconcerting? Probably. We'll see. Martha McCallum next. Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Any objective observer who cares about this country, its security, its future, said pass the bill. (laughs) But not our Republican colleagues. Not our Republican colleagues. They're all voting no even on the motion to proceed. They don't even want to debate border. They don't even want to debate Ukraine and aid to Israel and humanitarian aid to the Palestinians. That is Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, who said uh, that, uh, well, he wanted to, to be honest, he wanted Ukraine and Israel aid just passed. And the Republicans said, no, wait a second. Uh, we got to take care of our border first. So they worked on a bipartisan, a bipartisan border bill that doesn't have the votes of about 25 to 30 Republicans. So they don't want to move forward with it. Chuck Schumer is frustrated by it. But you can't pr- sincerely think that he wants to get the border fixed. If he wasn't actually wedged into that quarter, he would have acknowledged it, which is sinful because he is a New Yorker. He sees what's happening in, in, in New York. Sixty to 70,000 people just on our streets, cops getting beat up. You see the anti-Semitic behavior in the streets. Not a word from him. Maybe one letter that came out. The most, possible, uh, most powerful Jewish leader in the country. Martha McCallum is here. Martha, what, man, there's a lot of action in Washington. First off. On this, this border bill is pretty much dead, right? It is. Well, Kristen Cinema was just on. Great interview with Bill Hemmer and Dana Perino. And she is clearly massively disappointed in her colleagues. 
And she's from Arizona. She wants to see some action. She feels like it's all become too political. She pointed out a number of ways that she thinks that her bill is more strenuous than H.R. 2. Um, you know, she's like, if, if you're really concerned about about doing something effective on the border, she believes this bill should should be pushed through. It's not going to happen. But, you know, for Chuck Schumer also, it's like, you know, Democrats can find cover in, in this bill, right? They can find the ability to say, look, I did something on the border yeah. because when he turns around back, goes back to New York and wants to run again, if he does, um, you know, people are going to be concerned about what's going on, immigration. We are now, everywhere Absolutely. you go. So, you know, I, I think it's, I think this is not, this is a bad. I, I I think it's a bad situation for Republicans. And you know, Johnson had two bills go down yesterday: independent aid for Israel and this border bill. And I, I think it's um. I think people are so sick and tired of seeing nothing get done. The president doesn't get anything done. Kristen Sinema claims that in this bill, uh, there's enforcement that's incumbent on the president as part of this bill to carry out. The efforts to, you know, change asylum laws, to carry out the efforts to turn people back, detention for 90 days. If you, you know, if you don't don't meet the asylum uh, measures, benchmarks, then you're sent back. She said there's money in this bill to fly people back to Mexico, to fly them back to their home countries because the law insists that we do something in that regard. So. You know, I, I think it's a, I think it's disappointing, and it's and it's really embarrassing because Republicans forced this. Is oh, we're not going to, as you said, they're not going to send money to to Ukraine or Israel unless our own border's secure. And now they they get the bill and they go, oh yeah, never mind, we don't want to do that either. So what happens to that aid? Do you just let you uh, let the Russians take Ukraine and just let Israel uh, and their operations in Gaza? So good question. So the, you can't have it both ways. So. The other thing is you've allowed, at least temporarily, Joe Biden to make statements like to saying that the Republicans now own the border problem, which is comical. Yeah. One million people have come here illegally since October 1st. That's a new all-time record. It's clear the president has no interest in doing and in pulling the levers that he, are at his hand. It, it, it's, it's unbelievable, and I think it's going to be hugely right. problematic for him come election time. But the question is, you know, if conservatives who are very rightfully – outraged at what's happening at the border and who talk about the number of people who've crossed the border on the terror watch list, right, are not willing to do anything to get some measures to turn people back, then maybe they're not that worried about the people crossing on the terror watch list. Right. Are they? I, I mean, you, what do you think, Brian? What I think is this. Uh, Senator Langford uh, was been kept being informed and other people informed along the way what he was trying to do. He says that uh, Chuck Schumer was not involved almost at all. He had played, He said he played a role there. He said the White House was working against him almost every step of the way. Uh, Murphy came aboard, and Cinema was an honest broker. They felt as though they all got uh, mostly what Republicans felt like they got a lot what they wanted. Uh, what they are pretty to I think it's also uh, worth, uh, noteworthy to say that the Border Patrol Union wants Correct. this. Who is voting for Trump again and voting for the Absolutely. first two times. And they're dealing with it every day. And what they see is that the situation, you know, if this bill were to go through, as I've been told and understand it, these lines of single men standing there and getting passes into the country would end. OK, right. so if you are if you're horrified by that, you know, the women and children would They'd be turned around right there. They would be turned around and sent back. They would be deported. So, you know, if you're happy with them, just. Being able to come into the country under the current system, then fine, vote this down. But I, I mean, I, I just I think people are so tired of seeing no 
action and no change. And it was a negotiation. So obviously you're not going to get every single thing that you want. Right. But I, I, I think Congress doesn't function. And I think, you know, people we're just all about elections and and I and not governing, apparently. So and everyone seems to be OK with that or right. want that. Um, here's what uh, Chip Roy said. Cut seven. I saw former President Trump make that allegation earlier today on one of his social media posts. All the president has to do is declare the border is closed and it's closed. Well, with all due respect, that didn't happen in 2017, 18, 19, and 20. There were millions of people who came into the United States during those four years. But what did happen was that that administration, led by the president, led by people who believe in America, led by strong leaders at DHS, they worked to secure the border. They worked to get those numbers down. But you needed cooperation to change a lot of the rules. The remain in Mexico, which people were suing about. The, you need cooperation the wall from that Mexico. They, stopped. they kept stopping building the wall. They had to go repurpose defense money, got sued for that. Yep. The sanctuary cities tried to get rid of that, got sued for that, yep. lost in the courts. $650 million in this bill to com- to to finish the 50 wall, miles. find, you know, 50 miles that are that are so uh, important. I'm just watching that, some video as you're talking of women and children coming through the open areas. You know, yeah. pe- the cartels slice down the wall. They, they take out, you know, whatever kind of power tool they use. They slice down sections of the wall and let people run through it. One of the things that is concerning in this bill is the inclination for single men to grab a child, grab a woman in order to come in and claim that they're a family. But at least, you know, at least some of this cause it causes a pause in people's thinking. Right. Right now, I just run around the side, go through the cut through, pay, pay the cartel five thousand bucks, put more money in their pocket for fentanyl and and head on through. And you got these um, uh, the DNA kits were going to be pushed to the border again. And a lot of times with the DNA kits, all you have to do is hold the swab. Right. As soon as you do that, you go, by the way, if this is not your kid. Yeah. Under arrest, they go, okay, it's not my kid. Exactly. You know, so and it changes the mindset about whether or not it makes sense to try to come. So um, there was an impeachment vote yesterday, and evidently Congressman Green showed up in a wheelchair or yeah. something, and he unbalanced the vote. So mm-hmm. it was going to be a tie. So they made it a law so they could redo the vote again today. But why not just wait a week, as the former speaker wrote me this morning, and I said, would you have done this? And he said to me, I would have waited a week because Steve Scalise is back next week. Why don't you just wait a week? So I don't know why Gallagher's not voting for it. I mean, uh, McClintock's not voting for it. And here's what he said, cut 13. In this fantasy that somehow an impeachment, if it passes the House, uh, is is going to result in the Senate removing Mayorkas uh, with a two-thirds vote, I, I sincerely doubt that's going to happen. But more to the point, even if it did, it's not going to change anything. Simply swapping one left-wing official for another is not going to change these policies at all. So that's why he just said, I'm out. I, I, he says, I think it's a bad president. Gallagher wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal today saying it's just a bad precedent. When you don't like what somebody's doing, let's say you didn't like what Bard's doing or William Barr, they hated him. Uh, you know, let's say you didn't like Mattis or something that he was doing in the previous administration. Well, let's go impeach. You know, and not saying he's going to get 60 votes to do it. But what a distraction of two or three days of debating this back, two or three weeks debating this. Well, it's kind of shocking that President Biden, you know, he who has admitted now that he thinks the border is a crisis, hasn't removed him himself. Is there any accountability for the people in his cabinet who are who aren't doing their job? Like no. the secretary of defense? But you know what? I, I understand where Mike Gallagher is coming from on this. They know that that means that then they'll turn around and have a, you know, Democrat um, 
Democrat majority pushing to remove members of a Republican president's cabinet because we see where that goes. Impeachment becomes the, the tool of every party against the against the president of the opposite party. Um, it, it, it's problematic. Mm-hmm. What, what's, what's really sad is that there's no accountability at the White House for the people who aren't doing their job. They should be fired. He should be fired. It's, it's an absolute he should resign. I mean, if th- if things were as bad as they are and you were doing this job, you have to either have some enough integrity to say, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to step aside. Somebody maybe can do a better job than me. You know, that right. that that kind of sentiment seems to be gone. Uh, listen, New York, has, New York has repeatedly lied uh, to Congress, but he's just doing the things that the president wants him to do. The president wouldn't say that the border. Remember, the, the former president used to go crazy. He's like, he is just destroying Nielsen. He's destroying this. He's killing his own cabinet members for saying things were down. And we thought, Absolutely. well, that's an interesting management strategy. Yeah, exactly. But it's almost as if to say, see, if you say, well, the border wasn't better or wasn't. Well, nobody doubts that he didn't do everything possible to fix that border. People being fired, uh, separation of families, because, listen, they, they looked at it as a DWI, that if you're driving drunk and you have a kid in the back, guess what? I'm mm-hmm. taking your kid and you're going to jail. Right. They looked, they tried to do that philosophy. Yeah, so you might not like it, but you can't say, well, that Donald Trump didn't really try. And, and, and you can't say that it hasn't happened under prior administrations. And people need to understand that that's a possibility when they cross the border, that they might that they might be separated under that under that rule. But it's not in place anymore. Just to play it out, all that's breaking down on the border is now breaking down in the cities, which is really going to affect the election. And the thing that really stood out is when those cops were beat up two weeks ago and then you have the moped people grabbing a woman who's 67 years old, try to grab her bag, couldn't let she didn't let go or couldn't. And she got slammed into a steel pole. It turns out there's a moped gang, mostly from Venezuela, who not only steal your stuff, they go and get your phone and they hack into it and they take your Venmo and they wipe out your accounts. So this is a sophisticated ring that doesn't belong here. It's it's anarchy. It's craziness. I mean, you know, the, the cartels running the southern border and these South American gangs are, are having an increasing hold on people's sense of safety in the city. Um, it, it's it's horrifying. And, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I'm looking at things that Eric Adams has said recently about like he feels that he was sent sort of as a Jesus figure right. to take over Which I've always said. Um, New York, you know, to to kind of fix things in the city. You look at Johnson, the mayor in Chicago, who's like, look, I have to deal with this, too. You know, I'm a dad. I send my kids to the school system. And no, no, let's be right. He says, I'm a dad with a married to a black woman with black children. As if that makes any difference, a difference uh, if you're a parent who wants your children to be well-educated in a school system like everyone else in Chicago. So here's Eric Adams yesterday. Cut 16. Stand up, stand up. They need to see you. Deputy Mayor williams Ison, Deputy Mayor Mira Josie, Deputy Mayor Amazar, Deputy Mayor Maria Torres-Springer. Have you ever seen this much chocolate leading the city of New York? And then go down the line. Look, look who's here. This is representative of the city. That's why people are hating on me. Ma'am, this is a Matthew 21 and 12 moment. Jesus walked in the temple. He saw them doing wrong in the temple. He did what? He turned the table Came over. I went to City Hall to turn the table over. What is he even talking about? I'm not sure, um, but I think everybody wishes that he would turn the tables over in City Hall because the, the laws that we're living under in this city are creating a, a vastly unstable environment where people are getting dragged and, you know, their heads are getting dragged into the side of a uh, of a parking meter 
um, during these thefts. Again, it is not people want effective leadership. Right. I think Eric Adams has said a lot of the right things. And I do think that there are some situations where he has been butting heads with Albany and he would like to see change. He's a former he's a former police officer. This is not about black and white. And what you see is Democrats losing uh, the support of of black and Hispanic voters because they don't really want to be treated as black and Hispanic voters. They want to be treated as American citizens and citizens of these cities, and they want the cities to perform for them. That's what they want. They don't really care what color the leadership is in either of these places. uh, They're mad that these illegal immigrants are getting better accommodations than they are. They're mad that they're getting prepaid credit cards. Uh, actually, money cards. Can you they imagine, cards. Brian? Like you know, picture you know you see those black and white pictures of of immigrants coming off the boats and you know going past the Statue of Liberty. Were people standing in a line with like an envelope of cash to hand them when they got there? No, you were lucky to get through. Maybe that's just not in the pictures. I don't know. I mean, you do you do, want me to promo my do, Fox oh my. Nation special on, on Ellis I would Island? I love it. Right. I would love it. Go check out Ellis Island. Uh, basically, you went in there and they said, who's here for you? And if you had an uncle or aunt there, that will help you pass through. Right. Do you have any diseases? Do you have a job? And they go, well, not really. I'm going to look for a job. Well, I don't know if I'm you in. you got to go to court. And they would send you to the court right across the way. That was done. Uh, they'd be adjudicated right there. Uh, these, this stuff is all fixable, but not if we're not trying to fix it. But I do think this. Was de Blasio, were people criticizing de Blasio because he was a tall white guy? Well, yeah. you know, because he was doing a terrible job. This is all anyone cares about. We have to get back to a meritocracy. No one cares whether you're a man or a woman or Gangs, any other version. Doesn't matter. Uh, if you do a good job, people are going to get behind you. So we need to stop leaning on these right. crutches and explaining things by color and start performing as leaders in these cities for the American people. Uh, Martha, who's on your show? So John Kennedy is going to come by, the senator from Louisiana, and we're going to talk about what's going on with this border bill. I, I'm looking forward right. to hearing what he says about what happened after Republicans insisted that there be a border part to Ukraine and Israel's foreign aid bill. Um, and we're going to talk to Leo Terrell about exactly what you and I are talking about right now. Um, and Brandon Judd is going to come by and talk about what's going on at the border as well. He supports the bill that has just died. Those sound bites that we used all day. Uh, stick around a couple more minutes with Martha. You're listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. When did you first know that you could play in this league and be this successful? Man, uh, I think in camp, um, you know, there was some some practices and plays where I'd made some plays, and I was like, okay, you know, I, I think I can do this. And so uh, that, you know, sort of got my confidence rolling, and then week 13 against Miami going in and, and making some plays with, with the boys, I think that's when I knew. Brock Purdy talking about his unlikely rise to being the number one quarterback and the best team in the NFC. Uh, and he uh, drafted the very last pick of the draft when they basically gave up their whole team for Trey Lance, five picks to get a quarterback that was drafted the year before. But it's this unheralded Brock Purdy that ends up leading the 49ers uh, back to the Super Bowl in Vegas. So, Martha McCallum, you have a, a great acumen for sports. You're from a sports family. Um, what are your thoughts about Sunday? Well, I love his story. I think it's a great story. Um, I, I saw somewhere that he gets paid less than like the cheapest Super Bowl commercial you could possibly buy for thirty seconds. I think eight hundred ninety thousand dollars. Yeah, I thought it was eight hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. So I think he's an inspiring young man. I'm I'm 
going to be rooting for him because I'm just sort of overwhelmed by the whole Kansas City thing. Just like, you mean you're done with I'm him. contrarian, you know, him. so I'm like, I'm going to I'm going to root for uh, San Francisco because I, I think he seems like a great young man. And I would love to see I always root for the underdog. So what do you think about this? Because you some unless my team is, is not in it, which, of course, they're not. We have 20 seconds. Do you believe the days of a football coach screaming at the players, Bill Parcells style, Vince Lombardi style is over and more the cerebral style of Kyle Shanahan? What do you think? What a great question. Yes, I do think it's over for now. Do I think it will make a comeback when everything falls apart? Yes. Absolutely. All right. Uh, Martha McCallum, we're going to watch you today at 3 p.m. on Fox News Channel. Thank Keep you, Brian. Here. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.